selected Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 as our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. Describes to us the appointment of seven men to care for the widows in Jerusalem. It seems to be the beginning of the office of deacon, Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 at verse 1, the word of the Lord. Let's bow our hearts beneath that word of the Lord. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the distribution, in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, the apostles, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's ask God to bless his word to us. Father in heaven, who but you can show Jesus Christ to us through the word? We pray, Father, that as we read the historical record, as we gaze upon the work of Christ from heaven by his spirit, that we ourselves might be encouraged to know who our Savior is and might have hearts made to walk in his ways. O Lord, may we see your mercies and so turn from our sin. May we see your compassion and so be comforted. May we see your loving kindness and grow in love for our brother, our sister, our neighbor, even our enemy. Hear us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Congregation of Christ, I'd like to focus this morning on the work of deacons, and I'd like to have you ponder with me this question this morning, the question of whether we appreciate as we ought the office of deacon. I've had an opportunity to preach at quite a number of installation services over the years, and I have preached more often than not, I'm sure, on the work of elders, elders who have that weighty task to to guard the preaching of the gospel and to shepherd and rule over the flock. But have we appreciated the office of deacon, the ministry of mercy, as we sometimes call it, We know the ministry of gospel preaching and sacraments is important. We know the ministry of the elder oversight and shepherding care is important. But but does the mercy ministry, does it really matter that much? Is it very important to the Lord? Does he care very much about it? Well, the answer of Scripture as we see this morning is that it's hugely important to the ascended Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is about the work of Christ now from heaven as the crucified, risen, ascended Jesus, reigning Jesus, who pours out a spirit and is at work from above. Acts 6 is about Christ. 
our form this morning reminds us that the office of deacon is based upon the love and concern of Christ for his own. This concern is so great that he considers what is done unto the least of one of his brothers as done to him. Jesus says, remember in Matthew, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. What a striking revelation. The office of deacon is a high office. Do we care as much about the work of the diaconate as God does? Deacons, as ministers of mercy, have a unique role and responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ. Minister has a unique responsibility to proclaim the word and minister the sacraments. The elder has a unique responsibility to represent the kingship and the rule of Jesus Christ. But the deacons have unique responsibility to show forth the sympathy and the compassion of Jesus and their care of the needy. Christ cares about the ministry of mercy. And he doesn't abandon the needs of his people as he ascends to heaven. This morning we see the merciful Lord Jesus at work from above. And here in Acts 6 we see that Christ is preserving the joyful unity, the loving communion of his people by intervening now in a problem area to develop this ministry of mercy and so to preserve his people in that joyful unity and in their witness to the world. Let's look at that this morning as we see, first of all, the problem and then the solution and the results. We see the problem that arose, the problem that arose in the early church, and then we see this pattern that was developed as we see the solution applied, and then we see finally the harvest, the praise The eternal praise to Christ that's gained through the ministry of mercy and the ministry of the word. Well, if you back up with me in your minds a minute to Acts chapter 2, you have Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, and it's a glorious day that thousands are added to the church as they come to embrace Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so there's this great influx of people who repent, who are baptized, who believe. And then we read, remember that description of the early church. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. What a vibrant church, enthusiastic church, rejoicing in, in salvation. And so they continue in the truth. They, they live under the preached word of God. They share meals together. They enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And they love each other so much that they give whatever needs there are. They even sell possessions to have money to provide needs. What a beautiful community, sacrificially living. What a, a festive, joyful body. Remember in the Old Testament, believers were called to come to Jerusalem with their tithes and their gifts and to there eat a meal before the Lord and rejoice And they were to include in their meal the Levite who had no inheritance in Israel, the stranger in the land, the widow, the orphan. They were to celebrate salvation by wrapping their arms around all that were in need and providing for them also a festive meal. And now this comes to culmination in the New Testament. There's this this joy and vibrancy in the Lord and there's this love and there's this compassion for each brother and sister. What did Satan think of all that? Well, he hated it, of course, and he's looking for ways to destroy it. And maybe he thinks he's got his hooks into something as we come to Acts chapter 6 because there's grumbling now in that church and in that body. There's dissatisfaction. There are widows who are being neglected. 
And there's a feeling that some part of the congregation is not cared for, is not treasured, but is, but is discriminated against. We read in, in the opening verse there that, that the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. And you have to understand that the majority of Jews in Jerusalem were the Hebrews, as it were. They, they perhaps read the Hebrew Bible in synagogue. They spoke Aramaic. But then there were other Jews in Jerusalem who were Hellenists or Greek-speaking. Jews who had been dispersed throughout the world and had grown up perhaps speaking the, the common language of Greek. Scholars say there were both Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem and, and Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking. And you, as you know with language, you always know and are closer to the people who speak the same tongue for obvious reasons. But now in the distribution of bread, apparently there was a care for widows. And, and in the distribution of bread or money to buy bread... It seems some of the Greek-speaking widows are forgotten, are neglected. And this is, this is a problem. As the church has grown, and by now it might have been quite a number. It had been in chapter 4 some, some uh, I think it was 5,000 people. And now maybe it's 7,000 or 10,000. It's a, a big group in Jerusalem. And here are the apostles who are trying to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and now oversee the care of widows. They're, they're overwhelmed with the, with the greatness of this ministry. And here are these widows who are truly in need. You can imagine how it was for widows. For those whose family had not become Christians but were Jews, maybe they despised their mothers and grandmothers. These widows who perhaps had been receiving care from the Jewish synagogues are now expelled from the synagogue when they believe on Jesus. There's real need. It was right for the church to care about widows. God himself describes himself as the the father of the fatherless, the defender of widows, a husband of widows. He James, remember, would, would say that, that true religion, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And so here was a problem. Amidst the increasing needs, the growing church, and the cultural diversity, there's a feeling of alienation, of discrimination. And the apostles don't dismiss it. They take it seriously. They don't Say you're a bunch of malcontents, get over your crying. No, they recognize that these grumblings and this dissatisfaction is a difficulty for a number of reasons, but chiefly because it threatens to misrepresent the Lord Jesus whom they are proclaiming. Something important was at stake. The ministry of mercy is a reflection of God's very own character, and therefore it's never an insignificant matter. The church's ministry mercy is to reflect the mercy of our God. And, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, God had revealed himself as this this compassionate and sympathetic and kind God. Right? I mean, you, you think of all the things in the Old Testament that speak of sojourners and strangers and foreigners and widows and orphans and the oppressed. Just think of the gleaning laws, for instance. Farmers could not, as you know, harvest their crop to the very edges. They had to leave the edges for the poor to come and to glean for themselves. Think of how the Old Testament prophets rebuke God's people because they don't care for the widows and the poor. Think of what we read this morning in Deuteronomy 15, that when your brother is in need, open wide your hand to him. Don't be sad in your heart when you give to him. 
Your father's not sad when he gives to you. Mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy and grace go together, don't they, as the undeserved favor of God towards us. Often we think of grace in terms of the the undeserved favor of the forgiveness of sins. But maybe we think of mercy, maybe we should think of mercy more as, somebody's described it as relief of the effects of sin. Mercy is undeserved favor towards those who are bearing the miseries of a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And, and that's what this world is, right? This is a sad world. This is a hard world. This is a broken world. There is sickness and disease. There are broken relationships and failed marriages and orphaned children. There are people who are lonely. There are people who, who face all kinds of need and weakness and tears. We need relief from misery. We, we need mercy. And who is it that teaches us mercy? It's the Lord God who saw the affliction of his people in Israel under the tyrant Pharaoh. They were slaves and they were beaten. And God had mercy and brought them out. And he told Israel, now you are to reflect the character of your covenant Lord. As I am merciful, you are to be merciful. God replicates in his people his own character. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. The very Son of God, Jesus Christ, the express image of God, says in Luke 6, verse 36, Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. That's your charge as God's people. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Be like Him. The beauty of a Christian home is when the Father sets a tone of love and kindness. The beauty of God's household is that the Father sets the tone of mercy, of love, of compassion. And when it's lacking, then God's character is misrepresented. So there was this problem in the early church, that if widows are being neglected, they feel forgotten, forsaken, alienated, then God's character may be called into question. James tells us we ought not to show partiality in the church. Say to the rich man, here's a good seat. The poor man, you sit back there. No, no, God doesn't do that. And James says we may not say here, you know, go go be warm and well-fed while we give nothing. No, faith is a matter of deeds, not just of words. If the church is not merciful, if the church here in Acts 6 does not recover mercy for all, then many might be dismayed. These widows who are struggling to believe on Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah, might begin to wonder, is is he really the Messiah when this is the way his people act? Or imagine their, their relatives still in the Jewish synagogue who haven't believed on Christ. They might say, you know, I don't know. I was trying to figure out if this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah, but now that I see they don't care for their widows, why know enough of the Old Testament to know that God's people care for widows? This must not be the true Messiah. It must not be the true church. This morning, brothers and sisters, we should ask ourselves whether we take mercy ministry as seriously as God does. And whether we recognize Satan's schemes to use the afflictions of the needy and the loneliness of the despairing as opportunities to diminish the credibility of the gospel. In the communion of the saints... Every member of the church has a place and should feel secure 
I should sense that I belong here. I'm loved here. I'm part of the fellowship of Christ's people. There are many forms of poverty and need, from sickness or lack of mobility, financial distress, unemployment, loneliness, broken hearts. And the church is to be a place of mercy, of compassion. So the problem is when some are neglected, but then there's a solution. Notice secondly this morning, the solution or the pattern for the New Testament church It is encouraging to see the apostles did not get defensive when people complained against them. They didn't yell and scream, hey, we're doing the best we can. No, they took it to heart, sought the Lord, and they made a proposal that the congregation should seek out from among them seven men to oversee this ministry of mercy. Now, in that proposal, the apostles kept in mind two very important things. Number one, That the ministry of the gospel cannot be diminished. It would not be right for us to leave the preaching of Christ. I mean, these apostles were not just preachers. In fact, they they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. They had a very peculiar ministry. But I think it extends to all preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel may not be diminished for the sake of caring for physical needs. Right? The gospel has a priority. In fact, if you had to choose one over the other, you'd choose the gospel. But you don't have to choose one over the other, the apostles understood. And though the preaching of the ministry has a priority, the ministry of mercy is vital and may not be neglected. So the solution, not to give up either, but to appoint more men to serve. And So there's something beautiful here, a reminder that, that the Lord Jesus from heaven only has He doesn't just have so much grace. He doesn't just have so much of the Spirit that he can only equip 12 men for service. But Christ pours the Spirit upon his church in abundance. There's more servants to be raised up. As 1 Peter 4 says, As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so in the Spirit's leading here, brothers and sisters, we, we see this godly division of labor. Apostles will concentrate on preaching and prayer, but the mercy ministry will be put in the hands of others. It's not that one ministry is important or a godly ministry and the other one's not. In fact, let me point out to you that in verses 2 and 4, the same word, diakonia, in the Greek, is used for both ministries. In verse 2, we read of the diakonia of tables or distribution, the service of the physical needs. In verse 4, we read of the diakonia of the word, the ministry of the word. They're both ministries. They're both services. They're both important to Christ. And so we learn at least four things from this. Number one, that what takes place here becomes the pattern, not just for the church in Jerusalem in the first century, but the pattern for the church of the New Testament throughout the ages now. And we'll discover later that the Apostle Paul just assumes the office of deacon is in full force. In Philippians, for instance, he writes to the overseers and to the deacons. And in 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications for elder, then a whole set of qualifications for the deacon. And so he, he assumes the establishment of this office. Number two, we learn from this, that this is a spiritual work. The apostles say 
that they are to find from among them seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Sadly, sometimes we think of the deacon work as a less spiritual work. You know, it's just accounting, bean counting. It's just, it's just numbers. An unbelieving accountant could do it as good as a believing accountant. Not so. The deacons are not mere accountants. In fact, it's not even foremost in their work at all here. The deacons may take care of the budget, some of these things, and relieve the elders of that, but, but that's not even their primary responsibility. The deacons are to represent the mercy of the Lord Jesus. And they're not, therefore, simply government agents doling out social services. These are the representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy. The Lord Jesus who went about doing good, healing the sick, ministering to widows, providing bread for people. The deacons represent him. They're his hands and feet as it were, living out, showing forth Jesus Christ. And so, they're to live lives that give evidence that they're indwelt by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit. I mean, how will deacons show mercy if they're not keenly aware that they're the recipients of mercy? I read somewhere that deacons ought to be thrilled by the mercy of God. It's a good question for every deacon. Really, every believer, but every deacon could ask himself, am I thrilled by the mercy of God? Does it amaze me that I haven't gotten what I deserve, but God has lavished upon me such kindness. He has relieved my miseries. Only that will make a humble deacon, not a judgmental deacon who looks down on the needy and shakes his head at them. Only then will a deacon be able to wash feet and empty himself. The deacons are to have the Spirit's wisdom. They also have to make difficult decisions. They have to pray for grace, know how best to help people. They need discernment. Deacons need to be trustworthy men, right? Because not just because they're dealing with money. They need to be trustworthy men because they're dealing with people's lives and, and many things that are spoken to them, needs that are shared with them in confidence. They need to be spiritual men because they need to be patient, not get frustrated, maybe especially when dealing with the needy of the world. It might be easy to get angry. There's not a right response. It's, it's your fault you're in this trouble. No, no, no. The Spirit of Christ. Thirdly, this teaches us that the deacons hold an office. They are appointed. They pray over them and lay hands upon them. The deacons have an assignment from the Lord Christ. And therefore, even if the deacons find that as a church or culture, their office is diminished in the eyes of some, it may not be diminished in the eyes of the deacon. He must know, the merciful Savior has sent me. It's a high and a holy calling. It's one that comes with authority. One commentator writes, the fact that many modern deacons are little more than committee men Administering church finances and property only serves to highlight how far the diaconate has fallen from the New Testament pattern. The apostles envisioned a powerful personal ministry. Their proposal that the church elect seven of their own number 
who were to be men known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, indicates that this was to be a roll-up-your-sleeves, hands-on ministry, requiring a reputation for spiritual maturity and an enthusiasm for helping people. It's an important reminder, I think. We get skeptical, don't we, in this day and age where some do not want to work, some want everyone else to provide for them, and, and we get endless scams, right, whether on the phone or by email, and, and so we become a suspicious people. And it's our duty each day, we feel at times, to guard that no one robs me. And sometimes maybe we begin to think that's the way it goes in the church too. Our first priority is to make sure no one robs us, that no one abuses our giving. Well, that's, that's not our first priority. Better to err on the side of generosity than to be stingy. And I know it's difficult. I've had my study in the church building my entire ministry, and I've dealt with many people, even some professional con artists, where I went to great lengths to make sure we would not get taken. How hard it is to discern. One man, it turns out, was driving a stolen car. Another couple came, and the the woman was able to produce profuse tears. And these were both con artists. But you see, that's not our greatest concern. The Lord will deal with that. Our great need and priority, not to be foolish, but to show forth the mercies of the Lord. Number four, we learn from this that deacons are not called to do all the work but have to manage or supervise the ministry of mercy. How could seven men care for a church of thousands? Well, clearly they weren't doing all the work. They were facilitators. They were overseers to make sure none were neglected. But the church was to rise up. Our deacons, through whom we've been greatly blessed in this congregation, by the way, by their diligent care, by their merciful hearts, by their attention to the needy in the church and outside, the deacons need the congregation to be themselves ministers of mercy. They need our gifts and our labors. When the deacons make needs known, then we as the people ought to jump and show forth. They need hands. They need hearts that are open. They need a people who are merciful Reverend Vendellen, way back in the 50s, wrote this little pamphlet, The Ministry of Mercy, in which he reminds us that 2 Corinthians 8 tells us that, that we're to give, as we've purposed in our heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Then he writes, The deacons should make the poor feel that they deem it an honor and a joy to present them with these gifts of love in the name of Christ and of his church. Listen to this. Many members of the church consider it a dishonor to receive support from the diaconate. Some would rather suffer want than fall into the hands of deacons. And there often was reason for this feeling. The people of God are humiliated when they are fed like Lazarus at the gate of the rich man with crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. The deacons should bring a bit of sunshine into the homes of the distressed 
when they come both with kindly deeds and words of consolation and cheer from Scripture. And then he says, in order to do this, a congregation of cheerful givers must stand behind the deacons if the members of the church sow sparingly and give grudgingly it becomes very difficult for the deacons to distribute cheerfully. Isn't that the case? Let the deacons be examples of cheerful givers, of compassionate men, and lead the congregation. But let the congregation be generous in their love and in their mercies. So the deacons aren't always afraid the congregation will be upset that they gave something away and didn't protect. No. Let us rejoice together that God has lavished upon us, that we might lavish care upon others. That's the demonstration of Jesus Christ and his great mercies to us. You see, not just the deacons have tasted that the Lord is good, but every one of God's people have tasted that the Lord is good. We've experienced his mercies, and so we're to be a merciful people. And what then will be the result? Well, let's consider finally the praise that Jesus gains for himself. Verse 7, Then the word of God spread, And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This new division of labor. Remember in the Old Testament, Moses was overwhelmed because he had to judge all the people, and his father-in-law gave him some advice about appointing others. Now in the New Testament, the apostles are overwhelmed, and the Spirit leads them to appoint others. And what's the, 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 the harvest of, of this? What's the product of this? Well, it's, it's glorious. The church grows. The ministry of the gospel is preserved. So Luke, in his characteristic way here, speaks of the word of God spreading, the word of God growing through that gospel proclamation that, that lives are saved. They're busy preaching and praying. The church is even growing in her attractiveness and beauty. And many priests become obedient. Isn't that remarkable? Many of the Jewish priests become obedient to the faith. wonder why that is. Well, clearly they they heard the gospel testimony. But could it also be that the priests, whose ministry was to be one of compassion, right? I mean, that was the nature of the Old Testament high priest. He was from among the congregation that he might sympathize with them. And so the deacons, in a sense, fulfill a priestly office, an office of compassion and sympathy. And could it be that many of these priests now are saying to themselves, you know, Old Testament Israel, and maybe even the the Jews of their day were, were failing. They weren't showing the mercy of God. But look at this, the people of this Jesus, they know what mercy is. You see, the mercy ministry is vital to the church's evangelistic witness. And when the church is given to mercy ministry, the world takes note. In about 125 AD, a philosopher, Aristides of Athens, Athenian philosopher, sought to defend Christians before Emperor Hadrian. And he wrote of Christians, They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that distributes liberally to him, if they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. If they hear any of their numbers imprisoned or oppressed, 
for the name of the Messiah. All of them provide for his needs, and if possible, they seek to deliver him, I assume to, to buy his freedom. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, then they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. For Christ's sake, they are ready to lay down their lives. What a testimony of the early church. Went to great lengths to care for each other. And here, the word spreads. Disciples are gained. The church is attractive. The gospel that's proclaimed now is witnessed in action. And many of the priests who were called to a ministry of compassion are discovering in this, the church of Jesus, compassion. So we read the results here in verse 7. We're reminded, aren't we, that Christ would use not only the preaching of the gospel, but he would use what is to be closely connected to it, the ministry of mercy. Maybe to soften hearts or to open doors or to quiet objectors or to demonstrate the gospel. Or as Paul says in Titus, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn it, to make the doctrine beautiful as they see it now in action. Galatians 6.10 reminds us, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there are priorities in our giving, right? We all have a priority of caring for our family, right? If we don't do that, we're worse than an unbeliever. And then we have a priority of caring for the church family. That, especially, Paul says in Galatians 6, but then all, let us do good to all, to all. You say, how far should we go? Where do we draw the line? Well, Jesus extended it pretty far. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. Do good, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. We have to assess, don't we, our cultural circumstance. And we have to evaluate and distinguish at times, don't we, political policies and the laws we'd vote for in a land, maybe, from the calling of the church. We have to be careful, I think, in an age of a lot of irresponsibility and laziness and in an age of a lot of scams, not to use these things to diminish what we're to be as the church. God has given us a great calling to do good even to our enemies. How can we be wise and yet be compassionate towards the unwed mother, the immigrant, the foreign student, the disabled, the lonely, the homeless, the drug addict. Who deserves mercy? It's an interesting question, right? I mean, what's mercy? It's undeserved. Who deserves mercy? No one deserves mercy. You don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve mercy. That's the nature of mercy. It's undeserved. 
read a very helpful essay in a, in a book of essays that was uh, uh, put out. Uh, it's a compilation of uh, URC ministers some years ago that, uh, that these essays were put together. Anyway, I could get it to the deacons if you want to read it. There's a great essay in there by Reverend John Bowers on the work of deacons from which I've gleaned a lot. But he, he points out in there that we can distinguish the, the cause of needs, right? At least three categories. We could speak of those who suffer need because of providential circumstances. There's a hurricane or, or they got a disease. We could speak of another category of those who suffer need because people have done wrong things to them. They've been oppressed. Or a woman has been thrown out by her husband um, unlawfully or something. And we could speak of a third category, needs where people have self-inflicted wounds. They've lived irresponsibly disobediently and so there's turmoil but he points out in the essay I thought this was very helpful he writes none of these categories should serve immediately to disqualify someone as a candidate for mercy none of these categories immediately disqualify someone as a candidate for mercy but instead if we seek to know what category they fall in or what combinations of factors are involved in their need it's not so we can decide who deserves mercy but so we can decide how best to show mercy, right? How best to show mercy? How best can we show mercy in this circumstance? What combination of words or deeds or accountability or gifts, how best can we show mercy? I find that very helpful to think in those terms. In every case, we're called to be merciful, but what's the best display of mercy in this circumstance. In every case, the greatest display of mercy is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of mercy. Without his grace, then the life to come is infinitely worse than this life, however great our troubles are. But if we have the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we have a hope for the future in a new creation where there are no afflictions, but we have peace with God now and the grace of the Lord. As we think about all this, brothers and sisters, maybe we could pray for the grace not to be, as I often am, frustrated by all the needs, but instead to begin to see in the needs the opportunities that the church of Jesus Christ has to display the wonders of the gospel. And maybe we could pray for grace to be more thrilled by the mercy shown to us. We have more mercies from the Lord to appreciate his mercies. To say before the Lord Jesus, but for the grace of God, all that I have has come from you. Oh Lord, we are but stewards of your things. Ours is not the great calling of protecting what belongs to me. Ours is the calling of using what belongs to you. May God bless our deacons in the labor. Thankful we are for their compassionate service. May God make of us a congregation of cheerful givers. That is, the congregation shows forth the mercy. The deacons are encouraged. And as the deacons display compassion and teach us the way, we are encouraged. And we together then live out the gospel before the world. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for what you've given to us in our Lord Jesus. We praise you for the Lord of mercy, that he stooped down to us, that he washed our feet, that he died our death, that he gave to us bread, and that he lavishes us daily with such kindness that's undeserved. Father, we pray for hearts of compassion. We pray for hearts of sympathy. 
pray that none in your fold might be forgotten, that none would be neglected, that the widows in our congregation will be well cared for by office bearers and congregational members alike. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we'll be attentive to each other's needs. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give to us such an abundance of love and of gifts that we'll be able, Lord, to showcase your mercy to the world around us. Help us, Heavenly Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.